Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, my name is Alan Moore and you're listening to Gaelic Games Europe's twice-weekly podcast, This Sunday's Game. A very warm welcome to This Sunday's Game. We have a terrific show lined up here this evening. We're going to start off with Westmead Intercounty star Baidu Seya. He is going to tell us just how he got from Liberia to Rosemont. Also, how the GAA has helped him to get engaged with his community. And, of course, how he ended up as an ambassador for last year's Renault GAA 2019 World Games. Then we're going to have the concluding part of our three-part series with John Horan, the president of the GAA. He's going to tell us just how the GAA is, well, let's just say, taking over traditional heartlands of rugby in Dublin and around the country. And also just what he wants to be remembered for when his term as president comes to an end. But first, we have a wee bit of news. People, normality has returned, but fatalities remain. This was according to one Russian soccer pundit on Friday. As Germany's top two flights begin dancing to the tunes of TV sponsors and bookmakers this weekend, the Russian Premier League is slated to return on June 23rd as COVID cases continue to be worryingly high. In Ireland, a return to sport expert group has been set up to provide guidance to the Irish sports bodies. Meanwhile, the Irish sports media is in full silly season to keep the punters interested, of course. Dublin ladies football manager Mick Bowen told RTE that the 2020 intercounty season should be scrapped if no vaccine has been found. Quote, it will be beyond the timescale that is 2020. We have to play with. In my opinion, and it doesn't sit well with me even saying it, from the point of view of releasing pressure on everyone, this thing has to go for 2020. Now, on the other hand, in the Republic of Cork, Cork Camogie manager, he told the examiners John Fogarty that he thinks people are delusional if they think a vaccine is around the corner. To quote Mr. Murray, that he feels that this is an own goal that is closing pitches. Paddy went on to say, that the other fear I have with, with grounds locked up is young fellas climbing over walls and spike fences getting into these grounds and you'd fear for them. I can't see why from next week onwards groups of four can't go into pitches in a supervised environment. Better than any park. Of course that was in reference to him saying that at any weekend or last weekend the parks in Cork City were black with people playing GAA or training. Over in England, rugby boss Eddie Jones warned that players will return in terrible condition. Some players will come out of this better, some will come out of this terrible. How your team comes out of it, you don't know. But the big thing for the team is not what you do now, it's what you do when you get back together. Watford FC boss, meanwhile, Nigel Pearson, he is yet another English football person to be worried about Project Restart. With numbers high and UK in a little bit of a mess, the former Louvain coach told Talksport Radio that, God forbid we have a fatality. People are closing their eyes to the threat. Yes, we would like to restart, but it's got to be safe. We should be cautious to ignore possibilities is foolhardy. It's about safeguarding people's health. We have to try believe government advice we're being given that we've reached a peak but there's still an incredible number of people losing their lives through this. Finally, in the US, President Donald Trump this week lamented the cancellation of his hometown side, New York's Connacht Championship tie with Galway. In yesterday's White House briefing, he answered CNN's Caitlin Collins question, just why he so abruptly left Wednesday's press conference. Trump explained, 
I was impressed, big league, when my friend Larry took over the GAA. Believe me, I saw us beating Galway and then going on to whip Sligo and making history and reaching the Connacht Championship final. Everything else, he said sadly, is just fake news. At that, he turned on his heel and left. We're going to Westmead and to their inter-county star, Baidu Seah. So I pronounced your name correct, yeah? Yeah, perfect, Baidu Seah. You got it on, on the dash. Okay, <laughs> Tess, I'm glad. Now listen, of course, it's, 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 a, different, it's a kind of a, an unusual name for Westmead, but Westmead is unusual in itself. So tell us how you came to, to Westmead. Um, so yeah, I'm originally from Liberia. And uh, my uncle is from Liberia as well. And him and his wife used to live in Liberia for a few years. And uh, they moved from Liberia to Ireland and started a new life. And him and his wife decided to adopt me from Liberia because obviously my father and my uncle were brothers. So uh, my father just uh, asked my uncle to bring me here to Ireland. So yeah, basically that's how that's how that happened. They decided to adopt me and bring me over here. And uh, your uncle's wife, your, your adopted mom, she, she's Irish. She's from Westmead. Yeah, her name's Trey. She's from Westmead, she's from Rosemont. She moved to Liberia to work. And, you know, that's how she ended up meeting Ben, my uncle. And yeah, that's where they, they started. Coming over, you're, you're eight years old, coming to Ireland. What do you remember about that transition because for like I was 10 year old son and he remembers everything so what do you remember what are your, your clearest memories of the memory is kind of it's kind of like jumbled up because you know like you're so, you're so young and you know you're brought over to a different country and everything just changes so your past kind of gets kind of blurred out a little bit but you know I was lucky enough to go over back over in like 2007 and it kind of brought back a lot more memories and a lot more. I got more familiar with, you know, my past and my family and everything. So what I remember from Liberia was, you know, obviously very poor, one of the poorest countries in the world. And uh, living there was difficult because there was a civil war going on at the time. And, you know, as a, as a young kid, you know, you don't really know what's going on or you know see what's happening you kind of you're kind of protected from that and they moved away from that so i was lucky enough to have loads of sisters and brothers that are able to you know take me in and move me around and help me out big time so because i was the youngest in the family so they're all able to you know protect me in that way so yeah my memory of liberia was mainly just being moved around so much i wasn't in one spot for too long because you know the war was moving all over the place i wasn't in one location for a long time so fortunate enough to be able to you know be sheltered away from that so i barely have memories of you know playing or even going to school it's just it's just being moved around the whole time because it is something that we don't really understand um in ireland and most places in europe when there is a civil war you're or you're in a war zone um, parents' biggest job, first of all, of course, to feed and protect the kids, and also to try and create a normality around it. And you were lucky with you've got siblings that that could do that. How long did it take you to adjust when you arrived in Ireland, and how did you adjust? You know, when I arrived to Ireland, I remember being, you know, brought to one of my auntie's house. I'm sure I never met anyone before, and I'd never been in a house like a proper house with, let's say, about ten or twelve white older people and kids have never been in that environment before so 
you know, walking in there, I was obviously very, very shy. You know, I could barely understand them. But the only person for some reason I could understand was my sister, Marie. You know, I used to go to her to translate in between the two. You know, walk, walking in there was, it was, it was kind of, it was a bit scary. <laughs> it was a bit scary. Um, no, was that, did, you, you, you couldn't understand the Westmead accent? Because you, you could speak yeah, English. Yeah, no, I just, yeah, I couldn't understand. Yeah, I could speak English, but it was, you know, <laughs> African, it was Liberian English, which is, it's hard to understand in itself. I was listening to the Westmead accent, you know. I was so used to the African accent, I, I didn't know what they were saying. So I had to get a translate to my sister and whatever. But and yeah, no, it was a huge, it was a huge change, obviously. Um, transition, I suppose, you know, it only took me maybe, so maybe a year or two to transform into the Irish ways or the way people speak or even the way of going to school and being a normality kind of, Kind of way. So it didn't take me long at all because I was obviously very young. So, you know, I was influenced very quickly. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't too hard. Okay. So stepping forward then, um, of course, there's there's not a whole lot to do in Westmead other than fish and play Gaelic football. So you, you chose Gaelic fish. football. <laughs> Lots of legs. <laughs> now, of course, I, I love Westmead. I love Westmead. So, and, and very good hurlers in Westmead as well. But why Gaelic football, boy? Why? play that instead of something like um, soccer where you have like some, you know Athlone Town and you've got Mullingar you've got a great history of soccer in Westmead yeah, I suppose I started my primary school in Rosemont which is a very rural place and you know the only sport there is GA and you know we didn't even, there was no soccer there was no nothing there so I was in school with kids who grew up looking at GA who you know idolised it and loved it one way to kind of to like you know get swarmed into a group was to start playing GA. So in in primary school we had we had our a coach named Jim who used to come who used to come and just train us every Friday. And, you know he used to spend a lot of time with me and trying to help me out. You know he obviously saw that I was not bad at the game or I could improve. So he helped me out big time, and you know that helped that kind of helped me to you know go towards GA or Gaelic a lot. Like my dad wanted me to play soccer. Ben, he wanted me to play soccer. Mom wanted me to play GA. So I was kind of in between the two. So I did play a bit of soccer as well. And then I obviously had my grandfather, Tony Killahan, who used to play for Mana back in his day. And then I had my, my, my other cousins as well who played for Rosemont. So, you know, it was, it, was going both, it was going one way or the other, you know. It was leaning more towards Gaelic than soccer, so. I, I suppose I ended up playing Gaelic because, you know, all my friends and family played the sport. And, you know, there's a big history in Rosemont with GAA. So, toward and obviously, I love playing the sport as well. So, that was easy enough to try. You played Gaelic football, you're involved in the GAA club. Um, did, that help, did that help you settle in faster into the local community and in, 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 into sort of society in general? Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, obviously, being in the school helps a big time. But, you know, outside school and you're playing with, you're playing sports with these people that you're going to be with 24-7 all the time. So it was easy enough to, you know, have your best friends or your friends or whatever there with you. So it was way easier. It was a lot easier for me anyway to, you know, transform into the GA community. Of the Irish who've moved abroad, um, in Europe especially, and we take part in GAA because even though you might not play it at home or be involved in home or even interested in home, when you go abroad, it's something that, you know, it's a community to move into. Do you feel that 
in the wider GA community, they've been very accepting towards you, or how has it been? Has it been kind of a bit, you know, difficult at times, or pretty much normal? Um, it's been pretty much normal. You know, it's like it, like as I said, it didn't take me long to, you know, reach a good standard level of uh, GA. Probably like you know, started when I was eight. So you know, when you're playing underage, it's just fun and when you reach under 14, 16, it starts getting a little bit more competitive. Once, you know, you're showing any bit, like, and once you're showing any bit of interest, really, you know, people are, like, people will invite you onto the sport a lot more. If you're interested and if you're putting in your time and effort, other people put in their time and effort into you as well. So I felt that towards me. So, you know, that's what made it so much easier for me to stick to it and, you know, really want to kind of be successful with the GA. It was interesting for me because uh, last year, within March or April uh, 2019, and I was down in Drogheda uh, for a league match, uh, Westmead played Louth. And, you know, Louth going fairly well, Westmead going pretty well as well. And I noticed you playing. And the first thing that came to my head, uh, because I'm based in Russia and I've been working with anti-discrimination projects and sort of, and especially with fans and speaking with them and talking about them or talking about like their views and so on. And I'm standing there close to the fence with a lot of the loud fans. I was sporting loud, of course. I wonder what the reaction would be. And a couple of times you, you broke the ball, you came away with you gave good passes, and you broke up attacks and so on. And I wanted to hear, were they going to say anything? Was something going to be said? And the, the whole game, nothing was said. The only one, a woman, you were coming away with the ball, and she was shouting, get the, get the, get the dark lad. It was, you know, but I, I've heard the same thing. Get the redhead, get the red fella, get the... the but it was, a, it was a kind of a mark that people not just were showing respect. It was like, you might be an enemy, but you're one of our enemies. So it's kind of okay. But have you had instances where there has been, let's just say, well, racial abuse used towards you? Yeah, the, the only time I really remember anything racially being said to me was, you know, when I was younger, when I was in, when I was in primary school. This is like years ago now. So when I was in primary school was, you know, we were playing, let's say we we're playing, I don't know, tag or something, something little. But like, you know, I was very good at it. I got someone or whatever and he got thick and I was like, why don't you just F off and go back to where you came from, you know? And then from then, not from that kind of, it hit me in a different way because I was like, you know, what do you mean go back to where I came from? I'm, I like because I was so young, I felt like I was from where he was from. So I'm like, well, what do you mean go back to where I came from? I came home and obviously told my mom, and I was very upset. And she was like, you know, trying to whatever calm me down. But then, like, you know, I got this kind of a mentality in my head where you know people are going to say things to you to try to knock you off and try to you know better themselves a little bit. So you know, growing up then, you know, obviously I've heard things said to me, but. I've always, you know, brushed it off or didn't make a big deal out of it. The only way I make a deal out of it is if I, you know, do a good tackle or a good hit or a good, you know, score a goal or a point or something and try to rub it in the face that way. And in that sense, I ended up getting more respect in that way. Yeah, so I was fortunate enough, you know, since I was young, I've never experienced anything serious like that. I'm very lucky as well to be part of great teams that, you know, if anything was said, I'll you know, they'll back me up and they'll be able to help me out or you know, I wouldn't be on my own in that case. No, it's an important thing because I do remember when I was, you know, well, I guess 10, 11 years of age, playing hurling in Dublin. And there's a hurling club in Ballymone in Dublin called Satanta. And they had two brothers 
both Africans. Their parents were both African. They, they were working and living in Dublin and they were playing hurling. So you can imagine in the 1980s in Dublin, Bally won this And it was very, yeah. very odd. But nobody remarked. Nobody said anything. You know, they, one, one of the brothers was good. The other brother was not so good. And that's all I remember. I don't remember anything else. So it was a kind of, a, it was an unusual one. Why do you think in general, uh, either Africans or Eastern Europeans um, are not playing Gaelic games in Ireland? No, that's a tricky question because in Rosemont community, I'll, I'll go by that, by them, you know, there's a silent seeker place only up the road from the Rosemont GA pitch. And, you know, like the people from the community went down there and, you know, talk to them and, you know, let them know what was going on, what sports was being played and try to invite them. And I think there was one, one of the lads actually came down and trained with us for a few weeks and, you know, just to try to make them more homely or, you know, be part of the community. But, you know, if you're going into, like, to the cities, the big cities like Dublin or, what, or, you know, Limerick or wherever, it's probably a lot harder for the local clubs to go over into knocking each one of their doors, you know, and tell them because it's such a big place with so many people. You know, it's probably harder that way and probably never even heard of the sport either. Say, coming to Ireland, probably don't know what the sport is or how to get involved. Or I, I, I couldn't tell you how. You know, I was, I was enough to have you know, a mother and cousins who all played the sports. And my dad even, he, he knew about it. He, he liked it as well. And, you know, so it was a lot easier for me to kind of go and play that. But you know, for someone who just kind of come over to the country and don't know about it, they'll most likely want to suck towards soccer or a sports they are familiar with. I suppose GA could do more in trying to bring them in. That's another. Uh, yeah, I, it, it's something that the reverse of what we have in Europe, where we're trying to bring foreigners into the game. I'll give an example from Moscow. A lot of in our university uh, where I'm working, we have a lot of African uh, students, students from Asia, all playing Gaelic football because yeah. it's there. It's like, come on, try and play it. And as soon as they play it, they love it. And they trained themselves. Yeah, okay. Like yesterday, they were trained themselves outside. It was they were having fun with it. Girls and guys mix, and they they like it. But again, it has to be put there for them. In terms of let's let's just talk with you, with your career. So last year, winning Division Three. What were you hoping for for this year? Because I mean, you've you've been making sort of a very good team. There's a great history of Westmead football, always reaching a certain limit, but never quite getting over. I think. I was there when uh, you won the uh, Leinster Championship 2004. What can be for Westmead? What, what, what are the, the group of players like at the moment, Boyle? Um, I suppose, you know, last year winning the league was, you know, was great. It was, um, it, was, it was a great experience because a lot of lads on that team had never really, you know, won a Division three or even won medaling pro back at all, including myself. So, you know, it was a huge experience. And, um, you know, going up to Division two. We kind of set together as a team, you know, let's see what we're like in Division 2 to stick at it and see, you know, our main goal is to stay up in Division 2. Don't come back down. We're good enough to stay up. You know, we set our goal to stay up in Division 2. But then, obviously, you know, the way the league was going, you know, anything could go up and anything could go down. So it's all over the place. So we kind of set a target then that, you know, what's wrong with us going to Division 1? You know, we can work our way up there. You know, if we make it, we make it. If we don't, we don't. But let's try and, you know, set a goal to get up there. Yeah, so that was our that was our aim that year, to get up there. But, uh, 
you know, obviously what happened, you know, you know, it was it was cancelled, but um, yeah, that was that was our main that was our main focus to get up to division, you know, get up to division one and try to play with the big boys. And then obviously, you know, you know, for West Me not reaching the very height, you know, that could be another cause of Dublin being so great, you know, it's such a good team. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can get so far, then you're gonna meet them and you're just gonna you know, come straight back down again, you know, they're the best team in the country. So, you know, it's unfortunate for us they're in Leinster, so <laughs> Not really, we can do much about that, but you know, go out and try, try our best. What's what's the difference between Westmead and Dublin when you get onto the field? I suppose if you're talking, you know, population-wise, you know, Westmead, you know, we've we've a small population. Even for Dublin, say a corner forward, if he wants to try and make that corner forward position, there's probably about twenty other corner forwards that are nearly as good or just as good that is challenging for that player, so he has to be his best all the time. If you come here down to Westmead, there'll be a corner forward there who's very good, but, you know, underneath him, there might not be that good of, you know, corner forwards. There's no say, push. Can, there's no push to... There, yeah, there's no... There isn't, there isn't that much of a push yeah. on, like, Dublin. You know, every year, they're just as good every year. They have lads coming in who are just as good coming onto the pitch. And, you know, I suppose as a, like population would be a big difference in that factor. Uh-huh. Sorry, uh, but when you walk onto the field to face Dublin, just just between us, <laughs> so no one else is. When you walk out to f- to play f- play Dublin, are you thinking we can do this? Or you're thinking let's keep the score respectable, or let's at least just try to put it up to them. Like all all the time, you're going to go out against Dublin, thinking you're going to beat them. Like you know, you don't go out against any team thinking you know maybe we should you know. We should lose by ten points here, or try keep respect. No, no team would ever do that. You know, you always go out to try your best to win, and if that doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And if you, you know, mentally in the head, you'd be thinking, "Oh yeah, they're probably gonna hammer us." But you know, you're gonna go out with a big, you're gonna go out with a good shot, like that. You might have a chance, even if it's the smallest chance ever. You're gonna try to beat, you know, even though it could be an impossible task. That's in GA. We. No matter what, you're getting bet. You're still attacking. Look, looking ahead to this year, first of all, how much are you missing Gaelic football? And um, would you be prepared to go play as soon as possible? I'm missing the big time. I'd love, to, I'd love to be able to go out, you know, in two, three weeks and just play again. But, you know, you have to really think about in perspective about, you know, the safety of people or safety of people who are, you know, like... In another sense, we're kind of unlucky with the GAA, as in it's not it's not a professional sport. You can't just go out, you know, be isolated, then for another two, three days and go play another game. You know, people are working, and people are doctors and have their home and their jobs to go back to. So, you know, we're unfortunate that way where we can't, you know, play the game and then go and isolate straight away. You know, I'd love to be able to say the GAA will be back, but at the moment, I don't think it's possible. You know, as long as... Distancing is still in place. I, I can't see the GA being back. You know, obviously, love to go back playing GA. You know, nothing else to be at during the summer. You know, we look forward to playing. You know, summer football, it's the best thing ever. So I really look forward to it. But I don't. I can't see it coming back. That 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 is the thing that say Pascal has been saying about like no, they should ease the restrictions. But would you would you be uncomfortable if they said? You know, with the figures still kind of not dropping significantly, would you be uncomfortable going back, like say, in a month or two months to, to start playing games? If you know, if everything's cleared up and they say we can, we can go out. 
well then I don't see why not but obviously it'd still be in the back of your head you know it'd be the same in the back of your head in three four months you'd be thinking you sure. know but if it's if they all say it's clear and we're not going the doctor says it's grand everyone says it's okay then I definitely wouldn't mind going out and yeah it's just you know it's just the fact that if the GA is risking going out to play and everyone's kind of iffy against it then you'll be kind of afraid of going out but if it's all clear, 100%, I'd love to go back there, Bob. A few small things. Now, you've, you've just finished uh, your degree down in Waterford. You did uh, sports and recreation management. Bad time for it where, like, then you've you just finished and everything shuts down because you're, you're working in a gym, correct? Yeah, I'm working in a gym called JG Elite. It's in Athlone there. It's only up the road for me. So, yeah, I've been working there for the last, I'd say, about three, four years now. You know, it's it's one of those big warehouse gyms. So you know, people are in there sweaty, and you know, it's 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 an environment where you're kind of on top of each other and you're beside each other. So you know, that's an, that's that's the bad thing about my job. As in, I won't be back. I won't be back to working in a long for a long time. You know, I'll probably be one of the last things I'll be back. So you know, even if we're unless we're allowed to do you know personal training and keeping distance, but it's hard to keep distance when you're trying to train someone as well. And we were probably one of the first places to close as well because um, we had to be so careful with all the equipment. And you know, the minute the news came out that coronavirus is coming around, we you know had a meeting against each other and we're like, should we close down? Or you know, it was the right thing to do. And we're lucky enough to close down soon enough. You know, I hope no one caught it or whatever we know I've caught it anyway so it is it, it is a thing you know yourself well from working in gyms when you're visiting there's always these sweaty gits who don't wipe down the equipment after them yeah exactly yeah exactly that's the thing yeah that's the main that's probably the main factor of it you know and people sweat dropping on the machines dropping on the you know you know you want that kind of stuff happening in the gym because you know people are working but with the whole conditions you know it's probably one of the hardest things you know, we're the ones going around then wiping everything down and, you know, it just becomes too too much to handle. With that, how did you find being based down in Waterford? Was it a, a big change from Westmead? Yeah, it was, um, it was difficult because, you know, I missed a lot of the trainings during the week. You know, the lads were training really hard during the week and I couldn't come down because it was like, was it two hours drive or even if I was had to take the bus, it was nearly four hours bus. Yeah, it was it was it was kind of difficult. As in, you know, I we trained on the Tuesday Thursdays, so I had to I had to come down from Waterford Thursday really early and land here and nearly go straight into training, and then I had to take a Friday off and I couldn't go back up, so I had to wait till Monday again to go back to Waterford. So, you know, I was unlucky that way. You know, it was a lot. It was a lot harder for me. I try to make a man. I try to manage it. You know, I have to train by myself more for sometimes. You know, which is hard, especially you know you have friends who are who are not interested in the GA at all or interested in football, and you know they want you to come out or they want you. So why are you going home or whatever? Stay around. You know, you have to make that kind of sacrifice to get back. You know, I paid off last year. Thank God, winning the league. But you know, it's a hard thing to do. You know, especially if you're not getting anything for it or you're only doing it for the love of it. Yeah, it's really hard. It's it's a big sacrifice, and it's something that we against uh, especially with John Horn discussed that like, you might get expenses, but it's very very small expenses, and a lot of time with the club you're putting your hand in your own pocket. So it's a kind of yeah. you and as you said, you're losing out. You're losing out on a social life. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. You know, like I was I was lucky enough to you know get onto the Westmead panel in my sixth year in school. 
just finished sixth year. I was brought on to Westmead Senior Panel. And, you know, it was a big experience for any 18-year-old team. And that year as well, we got to, Westmead got to the Leinster Final that year to bet me for the first time. So I was part of that. I was part of that panel or whatever. So it was a huge experience for me. But then on the other side, you know, you had your friends finishing sixth year and they're all going on holidays and, you know, hanging out and, you know, going to the matches on the train, drinking, having the crack, whatever. And, you know, I'm, I'm you know, training away and whatever. You know, it's a sacrifice you kind of have to put yourself through with that. But it was, yeah, in that sense, it was pretty difficult. But, you know, you have the rewards. So. And you beat knees. I would be me. <laughs> me people won't be happy with that one, but yeah. No, that's okay. How, how much do you hate me? How much we? <laughs> I actually don't hate me. I have nothing to hate me. <laughs> Some of the lads do. I'm not gonna lie. A lot of the lads do, but I don't really. I don't have any grudges against me. <laughs> it's I, okay. I'm I, I winding up. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I will, I'll, I'll, we'll move past that. Listen, in, in terms of future in GAA. Um, would you see yourself moving into coaching because you have the, the sports and recreation background? Would you like to go into coaching or maybe go into a role within the GAA? Um, yeah, 100%. You know, over the years, you know, I did a lot of the cool camps and, you know, I was ambassador with the cool camps in Westmead this year as well. You know, and I love, you know, coaching kids and, you know, talking to them and helping them out as much as I can, you know, so... You know, I can definitely see myself in the future, you know, doing something like that. Even, you know, I've always, like what you're doing over there, and I always wanted to, you know, travel as well. You know, if I could travel too, I'd, you know, train, the G- use the GAA as well in different countries, you know, I'd love to do something like that as well. It's very, I'm very interested in that, you know, it's something that the GAA has helped me a lot, you know, I'd love to be able to, you know, help other people in that sense as well. Because it, it was something you did, you were an ambassador last year for the World Games. Yeah. How did you get involved in that? And um, did, you, did, where, did you go to any of the games in Waterford? Yeah, I was, at, I was at all the games in Waterford. But, you know, Anne Gibney, she asked me to do it because she got me to do the, Af- the Africa Day. And, you know, it was the first time the GA wanted to get involved with Africa Day. I said yes to straight away because it's such a big part of my life, so... I was like, 100%, I'd love to, you know, be part of the GAA and go down to Africa there and show the little kids what's about and ask them to join their little local clubs and, you know, the parent, talk to the parents, you know. I really wanted to do that. So, you know, I went down, did that for Africa there. And then Anne was asking me, do I want to do the World Games? And, you know, just be an ambassador for it, just to promote it a little bit. And I said, of course. So it was, I was fortunate enough to be down in Waterford already and the Games was in Waterford. So I just went down spend a few days there, watch all the games, seeing all the teams, chat to all the players and all that. You know, it was great. It was a huge experience. Really- You're kind of like a, almost like a Waterford native in a way where you were studying and living there. What did you see, um, what were the main effects that you see of the World Games on Waterford? Like the open, open ceremony was, like, I don't think anyone expected it to be the way it was. I don't know, there's was I a couple of thousand people on the street, you know, supporting all these different teams from all over the world. And, you know, just seeing teams from all over the world. And, you know, kind of Waterford, I didn't realize Waterford were so involved in it as well. They all came out and supported and was really, you know, they were really happy to see all these teams coming down to play the GAA. And even at the games, those kids from Waterford there and those families there just watching and seeing how far the GAA have come and how far the games have come. So, yeah, I think it made a huge effect in Waterford. Anyway. In, in terms of uh, your career at Westmead, how far do you think Westmead can go? Like, in the next few years, I mean, it would be hoping 
obviously starting off with the league, I'd be hoping to be playing Division One league, you know, competing with the Tyrones and the Armagh and the top boys and the Dublins, you know, competing with them and beating them and drawing with them or whatever. And, you know, coming back to Leinster then, and you know, in the next two three years, I'd love to be that team that are putting Dublin down to one point or putting them in a half or surprising them as well. You know, that's the goal, obviously, that I have playing for Westmead to be one of the best teams in the country, not just in, you know, in Leinster, but in the country, you know, kind of be recognised like that. You know, it's not going to be easy. It's going to probably going to take a lot. You know, having, you know, like to Jack Cooney, who's a Westmead man as well, part of the team, you know, hopefully he can bring, you know, us to that, that level that I'm hoping we will be at. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, fingers crossed you're going to get back to work sooner rather than later, boy. Um, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, and wish you very, very best of luck this year. And of course, um, keep beating me, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. Okay. We move from Boydo Sea in Westmead and East to Dublin and GAA President John Horan for part three of our three part one to one interview. I start off by asking him just. What is happening in the rugby heartland of County Dublin? Soccer? Like the GA is, is proving a big challenge to rugby on the south side of Dublin, without a doubt. Like, And again, it's coming down to the way it's organised and that's, you know, what it has and what it offers. Like, I mean, you know, there are rugby clubs, I'm not going to name them, but there are rugby clubs struggling to exist, never mind get back to where they were as actual clubs, like, you know, and... They're in, it's happening in areas where the GAA is actually, like, I mean, just one example, sure, like BlackRock were looking to let Kula come in as tenants on their property in Stradbroke. And like you'd say, well, they couldn't be letting the GAA club come in and act as tenants unless they just hadn't got the demand themselves for their actual facility. Like, you know, I was quite shocked lately. Someone told me there's only 150 rugby clubs in Ireland. That's you all. I mean, that's all, 150 rugby clubs in Ireland, yeah. Oh. Then the country, there is obviously, there's always more of a crossover. Like, I'd, I'd always look at Abbey Field down in Limerick, and they've, like, lads play soccer and GAA and rugby all together. It depends on the season and the games, and they'll get a run out no matter what. But it's a smaller community. But up in Dublin, it does kind of base on the school as well. And, and I kind of was shocked at it. And then we start doing an analysis of two or three counties, and we were saying, yeah, there may be, there's only probably, there might be three rugby clubs in Offaly and three rugby clubs in Carlow. So all of a sudden you can see where it just probably does hit 150. But yet the impact of rugby because of the international dimension, do you know what I mean, is there and whatever. Like you know, We just have to be happy in our own skin and know that, you know, I'm not saying we're perfect, but we do give it a good shot. You know? I always come to, to either European Championship or World Cup year uh, when there's soccer on the television. And you watch the you know midday game or whatever like that, like where we from the South African World Cup or the World Cup here in Russia. And you watch a Gaelic football or hurling game right afterwards. And it, there's no comparison. And pe- I've been in a pub in Moscow watching it with Russians. And they watch the football match and they're going, oh, Jesus, where, is, where has this game been all my life? Because it's just a complete other going from third gear to fifth gear. Again, it's not slagging off soccer. Right? No. Well, it's the pace. It's the pace of yeah. the game, I think, is won and the scores. And like you know it yourself, like... You never put a hurling match on before a football match because oh, no. of oh, the God, pace. No. Oh, you know what I mean? And it's similar. And it, it, it's just games are at different paces. And Gaelic football is at a, is at a good pace, and hurling is at a, a, a really fast pace altogether. Like, you know? is there a sense in dividing Dublin up into two? No, that 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 will look. One of the key things about the GAA is, and 
I've said it before, when you join a GAA club, it becomes an extra part of your DNA in a way. Like, you know, you, you meet someone no matter where in the world and oh, you're involved in the GAA. The first thing that I say to you after that is, what's your club? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And after your club, you, you, you talk in the context of what's your county, you know? And Dublin are going through a purple patch. Like, like anyone 10 All-Irelands in a short period of time? As I said to someone the other day, in my first 52 years of life, Dublin won seven All-Irelands. My young lad is 10. Dublin have won seven All-Irelands. You know what I mean? And as I said to him, yes. this is incredible. Like, you know, it, in my 52 years, he got seven. And in the next 10, you get another seven. Like, you know what I mean? Well, it wasn't even 10. It's only, what, eight, nine years when they get seven. Like, and you're going, gee, yeah, wow. And that's the reality. It, it's an extremely purple patch with a lot of um, quality players that came through. You look at Kerry, like, four five All-Ireland minor, all minor titles in a row. When I went down to present them with their medals for the fifth, I was saying, I'm, I'm coming down to get the last parts of the secret for Jim to get the Dublin seniors over the line for the fifth. <laughs> the point is, like they've brought through phenomenal minors. Kerry should be a dominant force in the GAA in the next few years and repel them. And you'd have to question, like, where's Kildare and where's Mead in the context of challenging Dublin? Like, you know what I mean? And like, you go back to what, 2010, since Mead won the Leinster final, final you go, oh, wow, what's going on? But, you know, people say it's all to do with money. It's not all to do with money. Like, the money is used for coaches, predominantly to go into schools. The clubs match it, right? And those coaches go into the schools, coach for hurling football and Camogie and ladies football, right? So they're going to do four codes. So it's not all in one area. You go and look at any of the squad work that's going on in Dublin, and look, I did it for years with squads in Dublin, players that are there now in the Dublin senior team. That was all voluntary. I wasn't getting paid for it, or any of the lads working with me weren't getting paid, or the fellas who had done it in the year or two groups before me or after me were never getting paid. It's just voluntary people. Now, there is one advantage. Population is definitely a big advantage. Like, you know, Longford need nearly every boy in the county to play Gaelic football for them to have, you know, a reasonable minor team, whereas in Dublin, you know, you could have seven or eight minor teams. But amazingly, Longford are well able to match Dublin at under 20 and at minor level. And it's just when it gets to adults. And I think it was Sean Dempsey was involved with Longford one time. And he says, John, you'd need players to stay with it for about three or four years to get themselves to the conditioning level that Dublin are at. And that's the key to the Dublin thing is it's the conditioning that the senior players are at. And the commitment as well to it, like, you know, that, like, the discipline they put in, like, I worked with Stephen Cluxton and New Year's Eve, 12 o'clock, bang, that was it. His mind just clicked into another gear and uh, got back into the whole thing and, and that was his approach to it. Really top talent, you know, at 17, 18 years of age. And they, they burst through and they're as good as anywhere else. But then it, it seems to be kind of like, it goes to their head, whereas it seems the double players have a bit more discipline. And you notice it even with, and I always, this is a silly thing I know, but it's with haircuts. Lads coming up, like great minors, and they have to, you know, they dye their hair blonde and so on and so forth. And they, you know, they're, they're big heroes in a small town. And then they come up, you know, to go up and senior and they blow up, whether it's just like their lifestyle or whatever that. Is it just maybe that Dublin has a bit more, there's more competition? That you, you, it doesn't matter how skillful you are, how good you are, you have to always be at 100% every single minute of every single game. I think it's the competition, but I think it's also the discipline because you can go back and say, look, Pat Gilroy and he got an All Ireland out of the squad, and we all know about the discipline and the environment that Jim created around the present successful team. 
if you go back to the Dublin team in the early 2000s, right, it, it was a different cultural setup there. Like it was, the Dublin team now leave the ground in a bus and they go back to the Gibson Hotel and they get grub and they meet their families and whatever. The Dublin teams back then used to go to a local pub here, six vouchers each to go drinking and the whole thing after every match just became a big you know, <laughs> blow. Go back to the 90s when Dublin won one All-Ireland in 95 and possibly should have won more than that. Yes. But you ask anyone that was in the background, just observing on that at the time was, there was a culture there of swagger and you know going into Arnott's and getting measured for suits and all these other things became distractions. You don't get that with with Jim. Jim is was and Pat Gilroy the same. They had just an environment, a kind of culture in the whole setup. Like you know, we'll do this now and we'll do this this way and we'll do that that way. And if you didn't buy into that, well then it was good luck. And invariably, Jim and Pat brought fellas in and they were in that environment for a year or two. And they then started to realise, well, this is what happens. This is the way the senior players lead this. So then you go, like, you know what I mean? Off the panel if you don't buy into it. So uh, the desire is, is to buy into it, like, you know. Um, so no, it, it's definitely, to me, it was a cultural thing and a cultural change. And Dublin could have won All-Irelands in the 1990-year, you know, the 1990s. And they could have won it in the 2000s, but they didn't. And like, if you go back to, what was it? In 83 to 2011, we won one All-Ireland in 95, I think, if I'm statistically correct. Yeah, that's all. And like, I would say just cultures weren't right. That was it. But in fairness to Pat and to Jim, they brought in this culture. And now the players would keep that culture going. And that's why I think Dublin has been as successful to keep itself going for the five year, five in a row. Like, you know, discussed it in, in a soccer contest, uh, context, excuse me, attitude reflecting leadership. Um, on the conditioning, John, something that I popped up recently, of course, with the, the Carlo player getting popped for doping. Do you think that there are some players, it's not a shortcut because you have to train hard in any case, that the sort of the, the specter of doping is in the GAA because of the, the gym culture in Ireland. There's a danger that maybe we'll have, it's, it's, it's more widespread than we feel. And in terms of what kind of education is given to players surrounding that, what to take? Well, they, 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 they get, all the kind of players get a clear education. They have to engage in an education program. And over 2,200, I think, this year have actually done that training program. They oh. don't get their um, grant from the government if they don't do that training program. It's part of the conditions of getting that grant. So, but like, if you go back, testing has been in since around the early 2000s. And like, I think four players have been caught in that time. And I think that's, that's small for the amount of players that are actually playing the game. And I know the testing culture has increased and we're very much in favour of that testing culture because these inter-county players are role models to the different levels down the line, all the way down along the line. And, you know, you certainly don't want that culture at the top end because it will filter down. So it's it's key that we we make sure that you know it's rooted out if it's there and that uh, it's not seen as anything other than a, a disgrace to the sport that you would engage in such behaviour. Not even just with role models, but it's also the health and well-being. And if you you know if you do that and you you know you, you take this stuff that's going to mess up your body and your brain, and kids see that they have to do that, they do aspire to it. So it's a kind of creates a generation after generation of. Your problems. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, no. Breach. Um, John, before, before we finally, finally go away, um, there was kind of these comments always made 
uh, in relation to the presidency of the GAA that, oh, it's another teacher taking over. Okay. And we heard it this year again when I was there at Congress and with, of course, the different people who were running, like from Larry and Jarlath and so on. And they're like, ah, oh, like, you know, there were these the usual hurdles in the ditch saying the usual kind of crack and there's another teacher going in or someone who has no clue about sport. Now, Jarlath Burns, of course, we know is a, is a principal from Northern Ireland. And uh, Larry, of course, is a, is a lecturer in sports management. Do you think that there's a kind of um, a, a, I'd say like the word in Russian is privichka or like predilection for the GAA bringing through a teacher as a leader for the GAA, someone who can educate? Do you think that's something that is a specialty for the GAA, or do you think it's just the best person for the job? But it's just that we 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 want that person. We believe in our teaching system and in our teachers. No, I, I, I don't think it's because of teaching it, that that's it. Uh, obviously, teachers are, can be hugely committed to the game at the time to put into actually and, and can get into the administration end of it. Um, have we too many teachers? Um, I'll be honest with you, I, I think it will be healthy to have people coming from different backgrounds because like, if you go back to the previous presidents, like go to like, Sean McCaig, a teacher, Joe McDonough, a teacher, Sean Kelly, a teacher, you had Liam O'Neill, you had Aegon, obviously myself. Like you have Christy Cooney and Nikki Rennan, two people that you know weren't probably from that education environment. But like I, I can tell you one thing: like coming into this role and coming from my previous role as a school principal, I can tell you, you bring a heck of a lot of experience into the job from the role as a school principal because as a school principal. The role is so multitasked that uh, I, I think, you know, uh, you have a lot of experience. You, you can go into meetings, uh, a range of areas, and not find yourself kind of out of your depth. And, you know, the committee structure then that we have in the organization allows you to bring in other people who can add that dimension to, you know, the business background or whatever and, and, and get the balance right. But uh, I think nobody's gone out necessarily to look for people in education or look for teachers. I just think it's people in those positions have time in the evenings and over the holiday period to actually commit to the association. And that's what kind of gets them on the administration ladder, you know? Of course, also as a principal, you have to work with budgets. You have to deal with government. You have mm. to look at grants. You have to deal with angry mm. parents. You have to deal with mm. sloppy students. So it's a kind of a... <laughs> no, no, yeah. You're multitasked when you finish a stint as a principal. And like, if you go back to my election, like there was five candidates I think two of us were two of us were teachers, and we had both been principals. The other three candidates weren't. This time round, I think those three people from an education background in it, and uh, two weren't. You know what I mean? So uh, look, that's the way it flip flops. But look, I, I honestly still believe that you know the, someone said to me one time, the GA managed to get it right. Like I, I think ultimately people do always plug for their what they consider the strongest candidate rather than necessarily get tied up in their background. And it's their, it's their performance within the GA world, I think, stands to people more than most, you know? Yeah, and saying that, I mean, with, like with, with Larry coming in, do you think that that's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a kind of a sign of where we're going as an organisation, that we're kind of, we're bigger than Ireland, that we're bigger than, you know, what we consider, we're bigger than Crow Park, we, we're, we're now truly global. Well, yeah, like a lot of people said, like, you know, would the GA take an international candidate on? Okay, but come on, Larry's ingrained. He's 
born and reared in Cork, I think Castellan <laughs> said on the television, the great work he used to do when he was in university in Limerick, uh, taught in Dublin, was involved in Rahini here in Dublin. Like, I mean, his pedigree in Ireland was huge. His pedigree has continued. Like, I, I remember one day, one Saturday morning, standing in the Fina with my young lad at a nursery, and for some reason, my phone popped up, Larry McCarthy, and I looked over my shoulder, and there he was behind me on a Saturday <laughs> morning, my club, and nursery going on. And I says to him, what are you at? And he says, I'm going to a funeral up the road at whatever, 12 o'clock. So I said, I just pop in around the club here. And sure, he says, that's why I texted to see where you're here. Then on other occasions, Larry, you come home, and you'd say, when are you going back, Larry? I'm going back on Monday morning. And uh, what are you doing for the weekend? Now, I'm going out to Wicklow today because there's a, a match on there. And tomorrow, I may be going over to Offaly to see a game or whatever. And his breadth and knowledge of what was going on, you know, in all the different countries in Ireland just kind of blew me away in that sense. So I, I, I wasn't surprised to see him getting over the line. And, you know, he comes from a very, he brings a different perspective. Like he's a lecturer in sports marketing in um, Seton Hall in New Jersey. And yeah. I think, the you know, that aspect of it, I think he's going to bring a completely different, like if you said to me going into it, what was my big area to bring to the job and it was probably coaching in games and you saw that talent academy report that Michael Dempsey brought out oh, yeah. and then there's been a, a restructuring in the whole coaching and games department in Crow Park has started and we love and whatever and in a funny kind of a way it'll be something I look back at in maybe four or five years time and say well it started the day I stood up at Congress and asked Michael Dempsey to take on that job they brought in a report that report influenced change and this is where the change has gone to now after five years and then maybe someone needs to look at it and move it on another I can see Larry going in with his background now. And he'll have a very close interest in the communications and in the commercial end of business in Crow Park because he's a great man at a meeting to talk about the value of your rights for selling this on to commercially or selling that on commercially. He knows that game. So I think he'll bring a sharpness into that and, and, and that'll be you know his big plus and look, he'll bring other things to it as well. But... I just think that'll be a new dimension and a new area. And, you know, I'm sure some of the staff Crow Park are excited to think, you know, they're getting a guy with that specialism, whereas in coaching the games, people were happy to say, well, John knows this game well and we, we'll see change here. Like, and I think change has happened, you know. And also, I think internationally, I suppose, I had a feel for the international end of it, the organisation. And that came really from a summer spent in Calgary playing over there and realising what was involved playing the game away from home, whatever. I don't think if I'd had that experience in Calgary, I really would have grasped the international thing maybe as, as well as I actually did. You know? Three final questions. So I'm taking up a lot of your time. So first one is related to the coronavirus. Because the GAA in Ireland is not just 26 counties. You've got two jurisdictions to deal with. How on earth is the GAA going to deal with a little bit of mayhem up in in Northern Ireland. What, how, how are you going to deal with that, John? We'll, we'll move at the pace of whichever of them is the slowest. So we've no <laughs> intention of leaving one or the other behind that we're not going to push on and create a 26-county competition. We will wait. But I, I'll be honest with you, I think both jurisdictions probably adopted a different approach to the actual problem, right? Yeah. But I think ultimately the, the gap will narrow in time, I think. As, as well as coaching games, you, an important word, I guess, is development. And you were always very, very keen. And say, for example, with, with Desi Farrell, you were keen to get a lot of these young lads 
um, refereeing from an early age. How important do you think that is? I'd look on it on another. No young lad is really ever co- coached in the rules. You learn the rules as you go along in this <laughs> organisation. And I always say that, right? That's, I mean, can I say anyone particularly taught me the rules? No. It's what I observed on television and whatever. But a key part of getting young lads involved in refereeing is to just show them a different dimension and show them you've got to give a little bit back. It's not all about you going and you playing and you doing for you, you, you. And if you go and you referee and you allow other people to go and play and enjoy themselves, it creates that little you know, seed in the head of, you know, this is not an organization of about take, take, take. You give a little bit back. So we're taking on that refereeing. Refereeing is a difficult task because it's, you know, you're dealing with society and wherever society is in a particular way. And, you know, you see it even more now than before where parents on the sideline get far more agitated and excited and, you know, give the lip. And again, it goes back to that point. If one person starts it, others going to say, oh, sure, that's the thing to do and they'll do it. So, you know, it does give people an understanding. But funny enough now, and I will say this, I've often sat in close proximity to referees. By God, there's no more critical than the ref- <laughs> of the referee on the pitch than the fella himself that actually does carry the whistle. Like, maybe a little bit of knowledge is too dangerous, you know? No, I, I've, I've actually, yeah, I've been sitting in, in Co Park with a, with a, a county referee and... The, the abuse is given referee now quietly given them abuse but yeah oh yeah no they're not vociferous about it but <laughs> that's what I'm saying if you're in close proximity to them and you pick up on the conversation I was shocked one day sitting behind two referees and they carved the poor devil up on the pitch <laughs> I felt he was I felt he was doing alright that they were probably being a little bit more technical about it than I would have been but certainly uh, I was quite shocked you know yeah, you know? I, and of course refereeing can be a bit political who gets the big game who's well in with the appointments committee you know no politics in every walk of life I'll tell you something that's, that's the way that's the way it works finally uh, looking back on your, your presidency now it's not still you've got quite a bit of time left what do you consider your main achievements because everyone's going to ask you like, or everyone will ask you like, what do you think you achieved but what do you feel are, are the most important things you've done we've- I think the coaching and games area definitely I'd see that as, as, as a, quite an achievement uh, I think the whole review of the fixtures has been another thing that I led. I think I was strong in leadership when the Lean Miller problem broke in Cork. I think I showed strong leadership in the whole um, Pride Parade decision. That was very much a personal drive by myself. The present crisis in the, you know, COVID-19, I think there's one clear message out there among our side. I think that the GAA is shown its own strong leadership and that to me is important. And, you know, I suppose... I'm going to say those three or four, but really it's up to others to actually maybe probably make the judgment and say, you know, was he strong? And I always said, and I said it in my first speech, and I know I got criticised by it following a week or two in the media by one columnist, and he said, oh, did you hear what he said? He said, it's about evolution, not revolution. But like, as an organisation, we don't have the values and the impact we have in society if we feel we have to have a revolution and turn it on its head. And it's a case of, I always say this about the GAA, when you take on a role in the GAA, you're passed the baton by somebody who used to carry it and you will pass it on to someone else. And just hopefully when you pass it on, you pass it on in a stronger and a better position than when you actually received it. And I'd like to think I've influenced some change that has probably left us in, in a better position than we actually were when it started out. And if that's the case, and as I said earlier, if I can look back on the whole coaching games area 
and say that report and the changes structurally even in staffing and everything like that if they can make their impact in four or five years time I don't think it's about being a bit of a flash hardy and make a decision just to create a short term change just to catch people's imagination you know what I mean and there was an attempt to bring in a tier two competition in previous times didn't happen it's in now there was an attempt to bring in the sin bin previous times it didn't happen and I think we will move on at the end of my time which will be the next congress because we probably won't be having any special congress now because that needs not going to be there because I'm not going to have the work done Mm -hmm. but I think the international end of the organization will be on a stronger platform in within the organization with the whole movement that we're making in world games and as you alluded to earlier about congress having an a world GAA dimension and not just having the delegates sitting going through the aspects that pertain more to home rather than to what would be of benefit to the international groups now on final thing in terms of the the congress last year and we we discussed it before we had our first chat um that speech you made it related to um bloody sunday the centenary um now it was hairs in the back of the neck moment would you like it to be that that moment when everybody in the room from me to marty morrissey everyone just sat there kind of going this is who we are. We are GAA. Would you like to be remembered for that? Yeah, I, I was very fortunate to get that opportunity, I think, to, to do that delivery. Um, I think acknowledgement would have to go to Keen Murphy for the work in the background and putting it together. It was, it, was, it was a funny kind of an experience. Like, I knew it was going to be an important part of the speech. And when I started out, I got a sense from the room, and, and, and it's funny, how do you detect something in silence? But, there was a silence in the room that just kind of came to me from the room. And that in itself, and if, if you ever look at the clip again, that in a sense caused me to actually even drop the tone and the volume of my own voice. And, and I think that then kind of created this atmosphere in the actual room. And then I think the words that Keane put into the actual speech, the way that finished out, where we listed three names and we made a comment and we listed another three names, you know, and then we wrapped it up. The 14 people went to a game. And I think the ultimate last word was that they never came home. Yeah. I think that and I'm even nearly getting emotional thinking and talking about it, but I think that hit everybody in the room. If it was a different time, it could have been me. And, you know, they were our family and they were our GA community. And I think that's what where it all... Did I think it would actually make the impact? No, I didn't. And I know you've alluded to yes. people came up to you and said to you, God, that was a moment. People that came up to me who I would have said, ah, hard-nosed, you know, GA, Tuffy and whatever. Yeah. But they came up and said, John, that, that just, that knocked us. Do you know what I mean? That knocked us completely, like, you know. So look, no, life is about time and it, it was nice to be in a position to actually do it. And I think it, it came off well, like, you know, no regularly especially in Hillsborough that all these people went to a game 96 went to a game never came home it kind of when it touches close to home and as you already said that they went they, they weren't competence they were they, they were killed going to watch a game it, it, it really really touched home um, and again I'm as I said already I've, I've already booked time off to get home in November for that because I'm, I can tell you Tony Bass will be there as well because he's he's looking forward to it as well Gas actually you bring up Hiddlesborough because that ties back to the Kenny Cunningham story earlier. That match that he actually stayed at home to play 
in a knockout to the trial in Millwall was actually played that day of the Hillsborough disaster. We lost it. We went back to the hotel to get grub and we saw this unfolding on the television screens in front of us. And I tell you, we got over losing the match when we realised what was actually happening in front of us. But it just, it just ties back to the Kenny Cunningham. It was the exact same day. Like The world is very, very small. John, John just a question. When you're watching that initially in Hillsborough, because you were seeing it on the television and I settled in to watch it, did you think when it was first breaking out, hooligans at it again? Oh, yeah. You would have thought there was an element to that. Yeah. But I, I think the enormity of the tragedy kind of clicked in very quick and people yeah. realised no matter what caused this, this is so serious and so yeah. sad, like, you know what I mean? No. No, but naturally you would have thought, oh, what, yeah. where was the lager louts that caused this? Like, you know exactly. I mean? No, it was, you know, it was just so sad, no? <gasps> when we first saw it, and we all spoke, we were thinking, yeah, I said, I remember, I was thinking, Jesus, here we go, the English fans, the Liverpool fans, and I'd say it was in the space of 10 minutes. You weren't thinking that bad, you just kind of like, oh, no, 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 this is something different because there's, Okay, that's a topic for another day. And John, thank you so, so much for that. No problem, Alan. Um, no problem. Really You're appreciate welcome. it. Thank you again for your support for, for Europe, especially, because, again, you've been a great um, advocate. And uh, just to let you know, we do appreciate it. When you, when you came to Louvain, and he was his Leicester chairman, uh, we did appreciate it. And we, it, it does make a big, big difference. So, again, go to meal No problem. Grand. Okay, Alan, keep up the good work. Fair play to you. Okay. Thank you, John. Cheers. Thanks. And the final whistle brings to a close this episode of this Sunday's game. Our thanks to Boydosea and John Horn for their time. Folks, we'll be back with you on Wednesday with some more news, views and interviews from around the world of Gaelic games. So until then, take care of yourselves and each other. Mm-hmm.